Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon and this is episode 53, Peter the Great, part 9, Reputation and Legacy. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so a quick recap. So last time we spent most of the episode analysing the death in June 1718 of Peter's son and heir, Alexei. We moved on to take a look at Russia in 1721, when the Great Northern War had officially ended, and we discovered that Russia now had an emperor, even though by the accepted standards of the time, it didn't actually have an empire. And then we finally took things to a close with Peter's death on the 8th of February, 1725. Just a quick point about that date. If you're doing or you've done any reading about Peter the Great, you may have noticed that some sources give the date as late January 1725. The 28th, in fact, which is true. So why did I state that the date of his death was the 8th of February, which is also true? Well, it's all to do with the two different calendars in operation at the time. January the 28th is when Peter died, according to the Julian calendar, which Russia was using. February the 8th is when Peter died, according to the Gregorian calendar, which was in use pretty much everywhere else in Europe. Now, some historians or authors mention both dates when marking significant events using the letters OS for Old Style, uh, and that would be for the Julian calendar, and the letters NS or New Style for the Gregorian. In the main, I'm not going to be doing that, and I'll just keep things simple by just using the Gregorian. There, that was fun, wasn't it? Okay, so what are we up to this week? Well, just the two things, really. Firstly, we're going to take a look at who was in the running to succeed Peter on the throne of Russia. And just a word to the wise, this is it's a little bit tricky to explain concisely, as there are lots of people with similar sounding names. And then we'll finish off by analysing Peter's 42-year reign and try to work out his impact and legacy and how he has been judged by historians and others over the past 200 years. Okay, ready to go? Good, then let's begin. In 1722, Peter had changed the fairly stable Russian rules of succession, and so instead of the eldest son or the eldest grandson inheriting the throne, it was now the incumbent ruler's right to nominate his or her own successor, and this prerogative would remain in place until 1797. But of course the irony here is that in bringing in this new rule, Peter failed to implement it. So that in February 1725, no one was really sure who was in line to get the top job. So what we're going to do now, before revealing who did get the role, is to look afresh at the main runners and riders in the succession stakes, which hopefully should also help to clarify who's who amongst the remaining senior Romanovs. Okay, 
So let's start with Peter the Great surviving children or grandchildren from his marriage to his first wife, Eudoxia. And that's simple. There were no children and only two grandchildren, Alexei's kids, 10-year-old Natalia Alexeyevna and her younger brother, the nine-year-old Peter Alexeyevich. Then we come to Peter the Great surviving children with Catherine. And again, fairly simple, there were three daughters. Anna Petrovna, who was 17 and who was married to Charles Frederick, the Duke of Holstein-Gottorp. However, intriguingly, and as part of the marriage contract, Anna and Charles Frederick had agreed that neither they nor any of their children could succeed to the Russian throne, a condition that Peter had insisted upon because he didn't want Russia to fall under any undue foreign influence. Daughter number two was the unmarried Yelizaveta, or Elizabeth Petrovna, who was 15. And finally, daughter number three was six-year-old Natalia Petrovna, who, unfortunately, within a month of Peter's death, would die from measles. All of Peter's full or half-sisters and brothers are dead, so that's nice and clear as well. But now we come to the complicated bit. The three surviving daughters of Peter's late half-brother, Ivan V, and his wife, Preskovia. Complicated because I don't really have to mention them, because they won't be a major part of the immediate future. However, two of them will eventually play key roles, and so I think it's a good idea to include them now. There was Yekaterina Ivanovna, who was 34, and she was married to Karl Leopold of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, and they had a six-year-old daughter named Anna Leopoldovna. Then there was Anna Ivanovna, who was 32, and who had been married to Frederick William, the Duke of Courland. But he had died just three months after their wedding day, and so now she was the Dowager Duchess of Courland. And then finally we have Preskovia Ivanovna, who was 31, and who was married to a Russian general, and who would play no further part in her story. There. I hope that's all clear. Don't worry if you can't remember all of those names. For the time being, you don't need to, because Peter's successor wouldn't be anyone on the list that I've just gone through. The next ruler of Russia would have the double advantage of A, already being at the centre of power, and B, would, be, would enjoy the support of a collection of powerful and influential backers. And that person would be none other than the former Livonian peasant, a.k.a. the late Tsar's wife, the Empress Consort Catherine. And due to her position, and more importantly the backing of her supporters, she would go on to claim the prize and become Russia's new ruler. But we'll look at how all of that played out in a future episode because now it's time to look back over the events of the past eight episodes and try and sum them all up. So let's look at it this way. If you were to produce or direct a film about Peter the Great's life, I think that you'd be faced with a few fundamental problems. I mean, I'm guessing that you'd probably want to include all of the big historical themes and events. So we'd have his birth and the early years at Preobrazhenskoye, 
the Strelsey uprising in 1689 and Peter becoming the junior of the two Tsars. Some sailing. Ivan V's death and the fun years. And some more sailing. The Azov campaign. The marriage to Eudoxia and his mistress Anna Mons. The grand embassy to Europe. And some shipbuilding. The Streltsy tortures and executions. The Great Northern War. The marriage to Catherine the building of St. Petersburg, and the death of Alexei. And then finally, ill health and Peter's death, with the last scenes probably including the supposed deathbed note, leave all to, followed by some seriously dramatic music, and then the end credits would roll. And that, I reckon, would give you, after editing, probably three to four hours worth of a fairly good movie. But does any of that capture the essence or the spirit of the man? Do you have Peter as the hero, or the villain, or even perhaps the flawed, misunderstood, heroic villain? If it's the hero you go for, how do you cover the Jolly Company, the torture and execution of the Streltsy, the treatment of Eudoxia, and the murder of Alexei? And then, what about the serfs and the peasants, the town dwellers and the merchants? What did Peter do or even try to do for them? But then, on the flip side, if Peter is the villain of the piece, how do you cover the shipbuilding, the statesmanship, the Grand Embassy, Poltava, his relationship with Catherine, the wholesale reforms, all of which enabled Russia to move from bit part player on the eastern fringes to the centre, almost, of the European stage? And let's break that down even further. Was Peter essentially a good man who, tough star aside, became a highly capable ruler who did his best for Russia and its people but had to take difficult decisions, sometimes with family members, which involved, at times, acts of incredible brutality? Or was he an evil autocratic dictator who cared for no one but himself, who tortured and murdered his son and shut away his half-sister Sophia, and his first wife Eudoxia, and then during the war, somehow struck it lucky. And before answering any of those questions, there are three other factors or questions to consider. Was Peter any different to the other European rulers of the late 17th century, or the early 18th century? Did life for the average Russian get better or worse on his watch? And taking everything into consideration, was he... well, was he great... And as you'd probably expect, there are some deeply contrasting views about Peter and his achievements and failures across a number of different perspectives, geographical, chronological and societal, from within Russia and from abroad, from the 18th to the 21st centuries and from the rich and the poor. For instance, in the period immediately after his death, the majority of the Russian nobility and, and the gentry felt, or said that they felt, lost, bewildered and rudderless. How on earth, they wondered, could anyone fill the Tsar's shoes? And just what were they, and Russia, meant to do now? But if you moved away from the centres of power, into the cities, the towns and the villages, you'd find a different story. Like many other European monarchs of the time, Peter hadn't really been aware of and hadn't really cared about Russia's poor. For most of his time in charge, he was oblivious to their way of life, 
and he saw the peasants and serfs purely as a resource to fight in his armies, construct his ships, oh, and of course build St. Petersburg. And then towards the end of his reign, he made things doubly difficult by firmly enforcing class divisions which tied the serfs in particular more closely to their landowners. And then new taxation rules were introduced which meant that a large percentage of the population who had never previously been impacted now had to pay tax. On the flip side, he did also ban the condition of slavery, but all this meant was that the slaves became serfs, and he also created a new class of state peasants, who had more rights than ordinary, ordinary serfs, but, and isn't there always a downside, they had to pay higher taxes. And so from 1722 onwards, the average person in the street, and remember that's around 80 to 85% of Russia's population, consisted of the rural working class, and they would have seen Peter as their oppressor, and would have hoped and prayed that when he eventually died, their freedoms would increase and their tax burden would decrease. Hmm, some hope. Many in the Russian Orthodox Church would have had similar thoughts. At the beginning of his reign, the Church had been an all-powerful, independent entity that operated as a private fiefdom with massive land holdings and its own administrative, judicial and fiscal departments. But by the 1720s, and as we've seen, there was no patriarch, and the state, i.e. Peter, had significant leverage and influence over church matters. Now this was nothing to do with a perceived lack of religious fervour on the part of the Tsar. It was simply down to the fact that Peter would tolerate no interference from the church, and he saw its role as being subservient to his own. There was a mixed reaction to the Tsar's death across the nations of Europe. Relief in Sweden and Finland, concern and possibly a hint of sadness in Poland, Prussia and the Netherlands, and barely concealed indifference, if you can conceal indifference, pretty much everywhere else. The overall consensus, though, was that Russia would be weaker without Peter at the helm, and for a decade and a half, that view would turn out to be correct. As the years passed and Peter's reign became a recent and then a hazy memory, two separate schools of historical and philosophical thought developed, with the adherents of each becoming known either as Slavophiles or Westernizers. According to Robert Massey in his Peter the Great, the Slavophiles deplored the contamination and destruction of the old Russian culture and institutions. Whereas the Westernizers admired and praised Peter for suppressing the past and forcing Russia on the road towards progress and enlightenment. And others, such as the Russian literary critic Vasarion Belinsky and the famous French writer, philosopher and historian Voltaire, shared the Westernizers' views, both seeing Peter as some kind of godlike conquering hero. Soviet-era historians and leaders also had differing views. Stalin was a big fan, whereas the historian Mikhail Pokrovsky thought that Peter, and in fact the entire Romanov dynasty, 
had a deeply negative impact on Russian society. And in the post-Soviet era, the debate has continued, and perhaps now, in light of recent events, is more valid than it has ever been. New ideas, perspectives and arguments have emerged. For example, Peter's reign is viewed by some as the defining formative event in Russia's history, whilst others have argued that the Tsar's period in charge effectively held Russia back from mainstream European development. Some now see Peter as the glorious leader of a cultural revolution, whilst others see him as a dangerous liability. Now, as some of you probably know, Russia's current leader, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, is a big admirer of Peter. He's openly compared himself to the Tsar and also sees his current Ukrainian land grab as being on a par with Peter's expansionist strategy. Back in the June of 2022, he made the following observations, as reported by the BBC. So I'm doing Putin's voice now. You might think he, and he means Peter here, was fighting with Sweden, seizing their lands. But he sees nothing. He reclaimed it. And then he goes on to add ominously, it seems it has fallen to us, too, to reclaim and strengthen. So there you go. How do you pick the bones out of that lot and come to a conclusion? Inevitably, I suppose, you take your pick and make your choice dependent on your standpoint and your views and values. For me, though, as the fence-sitter-in-chief, the debate around Peter's character and achievement, or failures, is best summed up by the Soviet-Russian historian Nikolai Rizanovsky, who gives us what he calls a paradoxical dichotomy, or an unsolvable juxtaposition using the opposing images that Peter presents us with. So, for example, God or devil, educator or idiot, architect of Russia's greatness or destroyer of national culture. And finally, father of his country or scourge of the common man. Difficult, isn't it? I reckon for that film, though, I'd be portraying Peter as a flawed, misunderstood, heroic villain. Okay, that's it. I've spent more time than I anticipated on Peter, and I'm not sure about you, but to be perfectly honest, I'll be glad to move on to something else. And so, next time, we'll be taking a nice, leisurely trip around Russia, Europe, and the rest of the world, and seeing how things stood 25 years into the 18th century. So until then, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all again soon.